This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project, the uh, podcast where we get a chance to talk with people of significance who've been able to find some success in life and to bring their faith into the manifestation of of their purpose and their vocation. And I'm delighted that in this episode, we have the chance to talk to Mr. Sheridan Voisey. Mr. Voisey is an author and speaker and broadcaster with a particular interest in how it is or how he can help people make sense of life and uh, figure out exactly what makes life worthwhile. He's written a number of books, including Reflect with Sheridan, The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned, and Resurrection Year. Uh, he's often invited to speak in different contexts, a contributor regularly to uh, to radio broadcasts, and is a person who is uh, part of the global conference scene, invited to speak in, uh, in places all around the world. Uh, Sheridan, it's wonderful to have a chance to talk with you. I think you're in London right now. We're talking I'm in Oxford. on different sides yeah, of the planet. So, Oxford. Yeah, yeah. So about an hour outside of London. And and is that where you've come to find home? It is. It is. Very unexpectedly. Was never planning to live over in the United Kingdom. My parents are British. And so I I was born in Australia. I was born in Brisbane. Um, but I got beaten up in the school ground because I had oh. a pommy accent. <laughs> Oh, because <laughs> my parents were British. And so I had this really, really quite plummy British accent, even though, of course, I wasn't born in the UK. Uh, so it's ironic to come back here. And would you believe it, Brendan, when I come here and I speak, people say, oh, are you from oh, South you're Africa? An oh, South Africa. You get, <laughs> you get that confusion. <laughs> I've paid oh. a heavy high price for this voice. And then you think I'm from South Africa. Unbelievable. Well, I want to, in, in the course of our conversation, talk to you about the notion of voice, whether that's something that is, you know, the, the, the oral and and how how we are heard but also the voice that you're able to create when you when you write and and what does it mean to have a voice in our world I, I think as I was running through all of those different parts of life that you're involved in at least your professional life author speaker broadcaster the common theme is is language is the use of of words and the constraints has that always been something that is been important to you? When, when did you realize that words were something that excited you or you could you could use with a sense of agency? A lot of people would start off by answering your question by saying, oh, when I was a child and I used to sit <laughs> and write stories on a Saturday morning. No, not at all. You're absolutely right. The, the key thread uh, through everything that I've done is communication. Mm. But I'm the last person who should be in this mm. role, you know, sitting behind a microphone, the last person. I was an only child for the first 13 years of my life, very introverted, very shy. Um, you know, my uh, my time was largely spent alone, playing with the dog in the garage, you know, on Saturday mm. mornings. And it wasn't actually to speak in front of people. And then I became a Christian. Mm. <laughs> 
And as a result of that, very quickly, I started to have this inner desire, I didn't know where it was coming from, that I actually really wanted to communicate. I really wanted to share some of these things Mm. that I was learning and that they were making sense of life. I really Mm. wanted to do that. I didn't know how to do that. Um, Certainly didn't still think that it was going to be on a stage in any form or a platform of any kind thought it was going to be more one-to-one. And so that's where, what it was for many years. Um, went off to Bible college, discovered in Bible college that I had some degree of pastoral uh, concern for people. Mm. And with that also came a dual calling to go into radio. Mm. And again, it was the last thing that I would have thought I would be going into um, I became a Christian at the age of uh, 18, 19. Um, I was in nightclubs. I was by that stage uh, going into DJ competitions um, and starting to get some positions. I actually came mm. runner-up in the 1990 DMC uh, Mixing Championships. And uh, I thought, yeah, and I thought that was going to be the beginning of my dreams fulfilled. And yet that was one of the loneliness night- nights that I ever had because it wasn't fulfilling this thing that was inside me, which was some degree of emptiness. Uh, My parents came to faith, um, which is a whole story in itself. I saw the change in them. I made a commitment. And a couple of years later, I then had this calling into radio. And we can go into that more detail if you like. So what I'm hearing is you're a regular typical kid in Brisbane, well, as typical as you, you can identify as being, through school, School a happy experience for you, or, or you, you mentioned that you you not suffered really. at the hands of others. <laughs> no, not really. Primary school, I don't look back on fondly. No, I was always the tallest kid in the class, apart from year two, I think, where another guy was an inch taller than me. So I was I was tall. I was lanky. I had this accent. I stuck out. Didn't quickly make friends. Um, was bullied. Uh, I don't look at those years as incredibly positive. Things got better when I went to high school, although the high school I went to could be pretty rough at times. Um, and so there was some, you know, standout memories of, of, you know, big school brawls down at the, down in the, uh, in the playground and things. Um, and then I went to a community college for years 11 and 12 and, uh, and that was a wonderful experience, but Mm. you know, it took a few years to actually mm. enjoy school. So what was it about the community college environment or, or the culture that suited you more than the typical high school, the 7 to 10? Yeah, I don't know if you know about this experiment, Brendan, but um, uh, back in the, so it would have been the late 80s, um, and I don't know how long it lasted for, but it was called Alexandra Hills Community College. And so it was basically a, uh, it was both a TAFE, but also a high school. Mm. And they did years 11 and 12, but they ran it as if you were adults. And so you could yeah. come in free dress. You were, you addressed your, your, uh, teachers by first name. They t- addressed you by first name. Um, and there was just a real degree of, freedom and welcome of a whole variety of different people. And also maybe, and you could certainly clarify this, is there not something in which when you turn that age, uh, you now realize, okay, I can't muck around. I actually now get need to get on with life. So everybody who was there at school, um, they wanted to be there. And mm-hmm. we were doing, as well as doing just your standard um uh, I'm just trying to remember what the name of the curriculum was back then. But when we were doing, I came out with a TE score. So I came mm. out with 890 TE. Tertiary entrance, yes. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, everybody who wanted to be there, we were also doing photography classes and sound engineering classes as well as the, the TE curriculum. Mm. And um, I think most of us, if not all of us, just absolutely loved it. Um, so and while you while you weren't conscious at, in those years of your the final years of your schooling, where your destiny was going to head, were you immersing yourself in the literature, in in the use of good language? He sounds like you're doing some broadcast things that would prepare you for your radio in the future. Not so. It was not at all. There was no communication at, at any stage. I mean, all I was doing was doing my assignments and um, listening to music, and then the DJing in nightclubs. Uh, of course, there's no speech there apart from no. maybe a little bit. It's all about mixing. It's all about yes. the music. It's all about yes. the song flowing into that song and Rhythms keeping the vibe and, yeah. happening. So no, there was there was nothing to do with communication at all. So let me ask you about that. The the, the notion of the vibe. One of the things that a good DJ does do is pick up the vibe in the room. You sense the atmosphere, you sense where things are moving and where the emotion is. Is that something that you also utilize when you are using language? Do you respond to the vibe, the the cognitive vibe? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I certainly... I don't think I got to the stage where I was very good at reading a room when I was a DJ back then anyway. Um, but certainly now in terms of speaking in front of an audience, the answer is both yes and no. Mm. Yes, in that you are the best communicators are those people who are able to be free of their script and be able to focus on the audience and mm. be able to serve the audience in that moment. Mm. To, to enable me to do that, I actually memorize my keynote talks mm. so that I'm not bound to my to my mm-hmm. script. Now I always keep on coming back every couple of minutes and just make sure I'm on the right track and check my key points and things like that. Um, but that frees you up to then walk from out of the, 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 the pulpit or the podium and be able to focus and make eye contact with everybody who is in that room, whether it's 2,000 people or 20 people, mm. make individual contact with those people. Mm. Now the, the no part of the answer is the fact that when you start off doing that, you can be really freaked out by the way that most audiences look when they're listening to you, <laughs> <laughs> which is they have a, a fairly blank face. Yeah, yeah. And there is, you can be so spooked up by that. The amount of times early in my in my preaching in churches and things where I would think, oh my goodness, I've so lost them. Oh, they don't care what You're preaching to the brick wall, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, afterwards, you know, you're, hearing all sorts of things that God's done in their life. Mm. And it just makes me conscious myself mm. of when I'm listening to somebody to mm. actually just put a little bit of a smile on there just to make sure mm. there's some encouragement back to to uh, to the to the speaker. Well, I want to come back in our conversation in, in a little while and explore a little further what that conversion experience, what becoming a Christian meant for you and how it allowed new opportunities to, to open. But if you would indulge me a little further digging into this notion of how it is that you are communicating. There's all good communicators are able to tell story to some degree. You need to be able to, to pitch things and and unveil, unfold the narrative arc to some degree. And yet you're not a storyteller. You you aren't writing fiction. You're not uh, spinning yarns. You you are discussing important ideas and and bringing concepts to life and and unpacking them. What role do you think that sort of communication has where it's the, the entertainment type of communication versus the 
analytical. This is a good hard look at who we are and how our culture is in society. Mm, I completely agree with you. Um, storytelling is the key tool for a communicator to have in their toolbox. Uh, and I don't write fiction stories, uh, that's true, but um, almost everything I do is actually storytelling. It is narrative-based um, mm. because stories are wonderful concrete tools. They, they bring the abstract down into the everyday. And so you can be talking about all sorts of highfalutin concepts like incarnation as we mm chat now we're you know talking mm. just before christmas and we're thinking a lot about the incarnation of the son mm. of god uh that's a lofty abstract idea but then when you start thinking about you know the great god of the universe squeezed himself into an embryo yes. and that embryo gestated for nine months and became mm. a little baby who was born and then you start painting the picture so that people can imagine it well that's where the great lofty idea of incarnation then becomes mm. concrete with something mm. that we can feel, taste, touch, imagine. Um, so storytelling is so key. And quick tip on that, if you want to be, become a good storyteller, there's four key ideas. Details, uh, drama, dialogue, and delayed resolution. So scribble those down. If you master those, the right amount of detail to paint the picture of the story, the right amount of dialogue to move the story along and reveal characters, uh, a certain degree of drama, which in this case just means the, the tension, what is there mm. to be a barrier before you, you can actually reach your goal, mm. and delayed resolution. Don't don't give the punchline before it's ready. Mm. So what I'm hearing, that's thank you for those four tips, and I'm sure people are <laughs> scribbling those down. Um, particularly those who may need to be thinking about their HSC essays at some stage, you know, how are we going to unpack that? Or some of my colleagues, my other teachers, we should write those down, friends. <laughs> what, what I'm interested in hearing, uh, Sheridan, is your, your notion that whether it is a, a strictly story for entertainment or whether you are outlying, outlaying a, an idea, a, an argument, that the same principles are what make it successful. It may, what makes it penetrate the human heart. Really does. And this is why some of the great philosophers have always turned to uh, to narrative and to, and to fiction, to storytelling. Think of mm. you know, Jean-Paul Zatra, um, mm. all of those. Why is their work continuing to have an influence? And I would you know, say in some cases very questionable influence. Why is it continuing to do so? Nisha, mm. it's because they, they, they embodied their atheism and their mm. nihilism and their existentialism into narratives, which mm. are then, you know, played out. Mm. On the contrary to that, uh, what about the great stories that continue to resonate uh, that have brought great uh, wealth and, and generativity and, and flourishing mm. to humankind? Um, Les Mis, mm. uh, what is it? It's a story. Mm. And so, you know, when we have those wonderful acts of grace that come out of that particular stage play, we feel that. It's not just mm. an abstract idea. We feel it. So the more that we can do that, the better communicators we can become. Mm. The work I do on BBC Radio 2 over here, um, Radio 2 is the largest broadcaster in Europe, 14 and a half million listeners a week. It's astounding. Mm. And in their breakfast show, which has got 9 million listeners, they have a spot called Pause for Thought, which is basically mm. a God spot. These mm. days it's multi-faith. Uh, and I get to be a committed Christian on that, wearing the mm. Christian cap and actually going in there um, and being able to give a three-minute little thought for the day, something that mm. will get people to be inspired. And I pray, awaken them to the desire to find this God who is actually seeking them. Mm. Uh, if, if I can 
if I can really craft my idea, my key discovery, mm. the thing that I really want them to, to take away into a story and then follow it up with a really powerful, punchy statement, mm. uh, I've hit home. That's the goal. Mm. That's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. You've got that opportunity. And again, I think what it speaks to, Sharon, is the, the complexity of our humanity that we deal cognitively, intellectually with ideas and truth, propositional truth, but we are also beings that respond emotionally. There are, yeah. there are things that tug us or or passions that drive us or draw us to ideas, and we need to be conscious of both of those things. Oh, very much so. And having written two full-length books that are memoirs, um, which are ultimately very long stories, in this case, 55,000 word stories based on a real experience. Mm. Um, I can tell you that that sometimes it's hard to actually write those things in a compelling way. Mm. But what you do is you break them up into mini stories. That's, yes. that's basically how you do it. And again, that's how, particularly when you're dealing with matters of the heart, dealing with big issues, if you can, again, craft that with as much detail and dialogue and color, uh, then you know you will connect with your audience at a, at an emotional as well as a, an intellectual mm. level. This is a a, a follow up question to this this line of um, thinking that we're pursuing together. You mentioned memoirs, things that are accounts of your experience, the things that you've lived, and there is for those of us who aren't necessarily recognised authors, the assumption that. That in itself is a cathartic experience that in the processing through language of your experience, there is more sense made, more identification of the underlying causes, purposes, who you are in those moments. Is, is that a, a genuine experience of authors, that there is this inner resolution of who you are and what you've lived? Oh, it can be a really wonderful tool for that. And so you don't have to write your story with um, the end goal of being published. Um, mm. I'm a big champion of journaling, mm. and that's kind of doing the same kind of thing on a, yes. on a more micro level. But you're absolutely right. When you sit down to write out a section of your story, and that's the difference between biography and memoir. Mm. Biography is basically starting from the beginning, <laughs> born at the Mater uh, Mother's Hospital in 1972, August 25, and you know, right up until this present day. A memoir takes just a particular experience, a particular time or season of your life, mm -hmm. and then starts to write that out. And when you sit down to do something like that, it might be your conversion testimony. It might be like us uh, going through 10 years of infertility, trying to work out a sense of meaning about that. When you sit down to write that out, it is amazing how many dots get joined that mm. otherwise hadn't been joined. Mm. Say, oh gosh, that actually led to that, didn't it? I haven't seen that before. That raised the question of that. And that got us thinking along these lines, which got us thinking about this, which ended up <laughs> meaning we moved to the UK. Mm. There's a whole bunch of little dots that get joined that you haven't seen connect before. Uh, and you're able to objectify the experience. Whereas mm. before it was all subjective in your mind and heart and just buzzing around there like a whole swarm of bees. Um, when you get it off the mind and onto the page, mm. there is some degree of being able to see it objectively and and make some sense of it. So you're absolutely right. Very much a. So a let me now point. ask you: the next side of that is you've 
expressed it. You've captured your story. It's there in print. What what do you understand it to be then when it is read and people respond to that? What's their emotions? What's the hope that you have for what it does for them? Yeah, well, here's the really interesting thing is that when you tell a story of your own, particularly if you're vulnerable with it, appropriately vulnerable, sharing some of those aspects that maybe you didn't want to share before, but you are doing it in service of the audience. Mm. What happens is that you do serve that immediate audience that you're writing for. So I wrote this book called Resurrection Year. It's Mm. our story of going through that 10 years of infertility. Mm. And then how do we start again after broken dreams? Now, the interesting thing is when writing that, it actually has connected with people far beyond that experience of infertility, which is yes. what I wasn't expecting. I yes. kind of thought, yes. I think I knew it intellectually it was supposed to, but I then discovered it did in, in practice, mm. is that it connected with people from a variety of different broken dreams, whether they'd never been able to get married or they did get married and got divorced. So I never dreamt of that when they were saying their uh, vows at the, at the altar. Um, maybe they'd never been able to have children as well, but maybe they had had children and lost one. Maybe they had adopted and it hadn't gone well or whatever. All sorts of different broken dreams. Didn't get the career they wanted, got the career they wanted and then lost it. Mm. So what happens when you do share a story is that there is something in which the emotional and spiritual components of that story can connect to a person Mm. who has not gone through any of the same details as you. It is, it is quite a remarkable thing. Story is the language of humanity. Yes. Yes. And w- when you were writing, and m- maybe it's you've written several books now, and so maybe you're more attuned to it in beforehand rather than surprised by it when it happens following, when you're crafting your account, knowing that it is going to impact somebody's heart, somebody else's context, are you consciously being pastoral in the way you present that or is it still a very personal representation that the miracle of our common humanity makes relevant? Mm, yes, the intention. I think to be a good writer and a good communicator, you do need to have empathy for your audience mm. and you need to be very mindful of where they might be and how this might impact them. And mm. I would say that empathy is the, the core of, of pastoral yes. concern for people. So yes. in that case, I think you're absolutely right. I know that some will say, so Adrian Plass, who is a well-recognized British uh, author, he wrote a little book years and years ago called The Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters. Mm. <laughs> As he says now, it's very out of date uh, with his age. Um, that's gone on to sell a couple of million copies or something. Mm. And he wasn't actually mindful of his audience at that time. He said it was pure catharsis. He was just, mm. he had gone through a breakdown and he was freed with this idea. He didn't yes. need to be thinking about gatekeepers and worrying yes. about what people would think because he was raising some. Um, questions about the church at the time and how they were responding to people who were in pain. And so he was freed from that and he just wrote this little book. It was a fiction book, so he could actually hide a lot of <laughs> real people in in the guise of, of fictionalized characters. Um, so, so, yes, but I think ultimately knowing Adrian – there still would have been a desire there to serve people. And I think that's what you you need to have. Yeah. I have read, being in broadcasting, you get sent so many books from yes. so many publishers and then so many self-published authors 
who of course want you to interview them because they want publicity for their book. And unfortunately, it's been those catharsis books that have been the ones that we've had to put on the slush pile because, you know, stories of people who've just been angry at the system or angry at what they were, how they were treated or whatever. And you can just go, you know what? This would have yeah. been great for your own private personal journal. Yeah. Yeah. It's not serving anybody. Yeah, so I really think ultimately you have to serve your audience one way or yeah. the other. And whether you realize it or not, like the, the example you gave with Adrian, the, the notion that the, the, the message the, when you, you did your four points earlier about the tension that or the drama that you were going to resolve at some point, it's got to be a meaningful drama with a resolution, isn't it? It can't just be a self-indulgent projection of dissatisfaction or your own emotions. Right. It's got to have an endpoint that you're working to or it doesn't meet the engagement of story. Right, yeah. And some will question whether you need to have a definite resolution or whether you can leave things up in the air a little bit. I love the film work um, of the Darden brothers who are a Belgian um, film production team and they do these wonderful social realist uh, films. They're very gritty, uh, but they raise an issue and then put a character through a challenge to see if they're going to be able to meet that issue. And sometimes the resolution in their films, because they're so subtle, very European, Brendan, so mm -hmm. they're not American where you've got a wonderful resolution in another 10 minutes of, of life all being lovely and rosy again. They're, they're very gritty. Yeah. Um, yes. Very melancholy in some cases, mm -hmm. but there's always a resolution and it might just be that little smile that breaks on the character's face for the very first time as she's walking up the road after dealing with her difficult boss, mm -hmm. which is a film called uh, Two Days, One Night, if you want to go and see it. And that's yeah. all it might be. And it's yeah. just that little bit of a smile that is hope. She yes. has now yeah. been able to overcome this after all the challenges she's been through. And that's yeah. all it is. Some degree of hope that you want to leave the, the viewer Just the, the listener. The suggestion that there is more to come. The suggestion that there that's is. That's right. There is. It's not a nihilistic, uh, hopeless context. Hopeless, that's, exactly. That's um, Sheridan, I, one of the books that, that uh, I'm conscious was uh, significant for you was the book, The Making of Us. Mm who we can become when life doesn't go as planned. That is a powerful, I mentioned in our, in our pre-recording comment that for that, for me, that little phrase was such a powerful conception of our humanity and our sense of responsibility that we have in the moments. If you're happy to, can I explore some of the ideas? Please do. In that? So I guess I firstly wanted to to know or to note your choice of the who and the the very strong humanizing element that carries. When you became a Christian, what changed about your notions of what it was to be a a human, a mm. person? Well, coming to faith at the age of eighteen, nineteen, uh, I. Probably at that stage wasn't thinking in terms of what it means to be a human as such. That's certainly become a wonderful thing for me to explore in later years, but I wasn't probably thinking in terms of that. Um, I was, I mean, the, the big impact for me was that I was trying to make life work and I was mm. trying to get success. And then when I got a little bit of success and it was a very small amount, you know, when I got a little bit, it didn't, it wasn't fulfilling. Mm. And so I was trying to make 
life work? And it wasn't working. Mm. And then when I became a Christian, ah, there was just this sense of life and hope and freedom and joy that came Mm. into my life. So those were the initial aspects Mm. of what, what, what faith brought Mm. into my life. And I now, you know, knew there was this loving God who was out to do me good and had Mm. plans and purposes for me. And, um, and then the community of faith, I, I, I made some wonderful new friends who were different kind of friends and they had a different kind of concern and spirit about them and they mm. loved each other. And all of those things were profoundly life-changing for mm. me. Um, I think what can just so often happen is that we slip into that without faith, is we mm. slip into that practical nihilism, I mm. think. We wouldn't even say it, we may not be philosophically inclined, but practical nihilism where we just think ultimately – we're just all trying to make this up yeah. and it works for some, doesn't work for others. It's not working for me. And well, I'll, I'll reach for the next self-help book that comes out because that might help. Yeah. But boy, I've read a whole bunch of those and life still isn't changing. And so you can see why people start to spiral down uh, yeah. down then. And I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, there was an intervention in my life. That, for you. And, and that's, that's, that's where my thoughts were led when I read that subtitle that you, the notion of when life doesn't work out as planned and the, the powerful uh, concept of a planned life and whose plans and the expectations and assumptions, almost the entitlements to certain experiences in life or or events in life. And and if you don't mind me asking, do you do you think having plans are a good thing or are they mm-hmm. inherently problematic? That they huh. inherently lead to disappointment. I think. We need dreams, and I think we need some plans. Mm. I think we then need to hold them both lightly Mm. and make sure that they're placed in God's hands. Mm. I think that to be human is to dream. I think it is. I think that to be a student and to start discovering, I have these capacities. They're God-given mm. capacities. And for one person, it might be artistic. Another person, it might be theoretical or engineering. Another person, it might be they love to work with their hands and they can craft and they can make things and they can make engines work. Uh, and they start to have in just whatever form that they come a certain dream. Oh, I'd love mm. to build engines all the time. Maybe I just want to really want to be a mechanic, or maybe I want to go and work for Boeing at one stage and, and do the, the the big end side of uh, of engines. And so, to have a dream, I think, is part of the outworking of God's potentialities in us coming yes. to the fore and us saying, "Well, where can I take this? Yes. Where can I take this?" So I think that dreams are good things. Alongside that, by the time you reach your 30s, 40s, certainly by the time you reach your 50s, you will have probably seen one of those dreams that you had somehow go wrong. Yes. Now for us, actually for for, for me, there were two. Mm. For us together as a couple, it was not being able to have kids. Ten years of praying. Mm. Halfway through that journey saying, you know, God, all right, if the answer is no, could you just tell us no? Yes. Because that would be a, a grace in itself yes. so that we can then grieve and move on. Yes. We didn't even have a no. Yes, It was a difficult time. There are mysteries about this life, which Job, the book of Job is all about. Job never gets 
answers to his questions when God finally appears from the clouds and, you know, he speaks his booming voice, never gets answers to his questions. We get answers to Job's questions, (laughs) but Job never does. Uh, We know more about the story than he does. He doesn't know anything about Satan's role in that story. Mm. Uh, And so you will have disappointments. And Mm. what do you do then with those dreams break? Because we are living in a fallen world. We are not in a new heavens and new earth Mm. situation. We are living in a fallen world. Some of those dreams will break. The second dream for me that was broken was ultimately this quote unquote successful ministry that I had when we were living in Sydney. Mm. I was host of a national radio show and speaking engagements at Australia's parliament house, um, book published, you know, uh, two books, uh, three, uh, four by that stage, uh, come to the UK so that my wife can have her new beginning after not being able to have kids. And all of that shut the door shut on that yes, for yes. a good few years. Yes. And I didn't know I couldn't be a father. So that was an identity gone, yeah. but maybe writer, speaker, broadcaster was also yeah. gone as well. And so I was asking those two great human questions again, who are you Sheridan? Yes. And what are you on this earth to do? Exactly. I thought I'd ask those, answer those once in my twenties, live it out for the rest of my yes. life. No, sometimes you've got to actually answer those a couple of times throughout your life. Well, again, that's, that's a segue to the, the next part of the little phrase that leapt out to me. When, when life works out or doesn't work out as planned and the notion, well, what is life working out? What, for, for you, what advice would you have for somebody who's trying to figure out what is a worked out life? What's the end point <laughs> that I should be aspiring to? What's the, yeah. the strategy hasn't worked to get to me to that thing? What's the thing? And where do we get yeah. that source of, of destiny? Yeah, fabulous. These are great questions. I'm asked a lot of very similar questions, Brendan, and you're asking me a whole heap of new, fresh questions, and I love it. A verse of scripture that has become just so pivotal for me since working through all of this mm. and the, the infertility and then when coming to the UK and, and you know, BBC Radio 2, they weren't <laughs> returning my phone calls you know, for the first few years. It took a few years to have those doors open. Uh, is Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, and Mm. the Apostle Paul says, follow God's example Mm. as dearly loved children Mm. and walk in the way of love. Mm. And he continues on, just as Christ loved us Mm. and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, those first three sentences, I believe, are the answer to your question. Mm. Follow God's example in that that context is actually about taking on God's character, his kindness, his compassion, his forgiveness is grace. I would also say that part of that is also agency and actually yes. following God's example. Yes. Do new things. Yes. Seek new adventures. Yes. Second one, as dearly loved children. This is the thing I had written about, I had spoken about, but when I lost those identities for a period of time, I wasn't too sure if I really knew, mm. is that every identity that we can come up with in this world, which are wonderful identities, Mm. might be being an artist or being an engineer, being a mechanic, might be being a mother, father, Mm. all of those things. They're all wonderful identities, but Mm. they are fragile in this Mm. world. But being a child of God, sickness, can't Mm. take that away. A brain hemorrhage and losing all your faculties, that can't Mm. take that away. Death can't take it away. Mm. Uh, And I had to go very deep 
and mm. really rest deeply in that. I am a loved child Amen. of God. Amen. And if I really ground my identity yeah. in that, yes. you find that you have all the acceptance and all of the grace and all of the inner resources that you need to be able to get out of bed and fight another day. Yes. And then walk in the way of love. Yes. And if I go out, okay, the, no radio shows, publishers turning me down, all of those things. But if I go out and there's a neighbor on the street down here and they're in need and I walk in the way of love and serve them, yes. I have actually fulfilled a great holy divine purpose. Yes. And it's being able to come back to that sense of those small things are actually part of the great calling of God on yes. your life. Yes, wonderful. Now, if you follow that through, wonderful. love is to be the, the great river out of which all the streams of our life flow, engineering, yes. art, yes. broadcasting and writing, mothering, fathering, being a teacher, being a lecturer, being a principal, all of those things then you will find that that becomes the central calling. Love becomes the central calling. Yes. Sometimes one of those streams might dry up. Mm. But what you can do then is get your mm. kayak out, walk back up the stream, go back to the great river, mm. and then love and then see which other streams open up again. Mm. Yeah, that, that's beautiful, uh, Sheridan, unpacking those three elements of that passage captures so much of your That is the answer. What is a, what is a worked out life? to allow oh, God to, to reveal himself through you, in you, to you, and transform your own conceptions of what your place in the world is, what your contribution, how, how that contribution is revealed. And, you know, here's the interesting thing is that the, the next bit of that verse, just as Christ loved us, Yeah. well, what was Christ's greatest, quote, contribution to the world? Yes. It was a cross. Yeah. And after that, a resurrection. And so what we can find, and that's, I guess, a, a fourth point, really, that we can add, is that there is redemption. Mm. And again, I knew it theoretically, but to then go public on our infertility story, which is a very personal story. I mean, I was never, want, it wasn't in my goals and my five-year plans to go and tell everybody that I've got a low sperm count. Mm. That was not what I wanted to do. In doing that, it somehow has empowered a whole bunch of other people and a whole mm. bunch of men, by the way, mm. who otherwise would be very, very quiet about these things, to step out of some sense of shame, even though they've got no choice in this matter, step out of some sense of shame and actually be able to walk into God's new future for them mm. because he's able to take these things and recycle them into something really powerful and beautiful, mm. a kind of beauty that you wouldn't have if life had gone as, quote, planned. Mm. Um so that's the other element to all of this is mm. that sometimes those broken dreams can be God's wonderful, wonderful starting points for a new beginning. Now, I, I want to be put some caveats on that too because I don't want to kind of come in and, and be all, <sighs> life is all going to work out well, even the broken dream is going to work out well. For some people, it, right to the very end of this life, it is a very difficult trial. But we know that this life is not the end. And if that redemption doesn't come now, it's Amen. coming. That's so there is going to be a, a wonderful sweeping up of all those difficult parts of, of our story too. Yeah, which, which again, coming back to that little subtitle of that book, Who We Can Become, the sense of possibility. Yes. That it's, it's, not an, it's not an inevitability. It's not just work the process or work the problem and ipso facto mechanically 
it's going to work out or you'll find meaning or it'll all be okay in the end, there is that hope that's implied. Yeah. yeah. And and in some ways, Sharon, I don't know whether you agree with this, that, that hope is one of the most important things for the human soul to, to have a sense of. Mm. Hopelessness is a very dark, desperate place. The element of hope is life-giving. Yeah, it really is. We need it. We, we feed off it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when that hope dims out, you know, like mm. a, a snuffed out flame, well, then that's when we really are emotionally and spiritually, we're really in peril. Mm. So, um, and this is what the gospel brings. It yeah, brings that yeah. even in the difficult things, even if you're not too sure how it's going to happen and you're yeah. struggling to see that glimpse of light, it is there. Yes, the story uh, of the gospel. Yeah, yeah that's it great. Is. Just before we, we pull things um, to, to an end, I wonder, we've been talking with the assumption as as Christians, as believers that have come to a, a personal experience of that assurance of God's love and you talked about dear children loved by God and the notion all things work together to those who love God, call according to his purpose. If, you, uh, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you haven't, tasted and experienced that love of God, is there still hope or is the story of the gospel the fundamental point that all human hearts need to find some resolution in? Yeah. We've I mean, we've had some wonderful thinkers and philosophers over the years, haven't we? I'm, I'm about to launch a big project on adult friendship. Mm. I've spent the last three years delving into some of the wonderful thinkers throughout history, particularly Aristotle and Cicero, who are still, after all these thousands of years, still some of the finest thinkers on mm. friendship that you can find. All, all other thoughts have really been in some way riffing off what they've kind of come up with. Uh, these were fine philosophers. But ultimately, if you're still left alone with great ideas, where's the power to live them out? Mm. I've been reading through that great Jewish book of, of wisdom and melancholy. Gosh, this is the ultimate European film with subtitles where everything is dark. And <laughs> the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. It's amazing that this is in Jewish and Christian scriptures because, you know, it, it is he's wrestling with the meaning of life and he's, he's trying to build great projects and he's trying to find it in, in sex and relationships and he's trying to find it in wisdom. Yes. And in the end he says, look, I tried it, but it's just not working. Yes. It's kind of like a Woody Allen film where in the end, there's this Woody Allen film called Whatever Works. And in the end, the central character looks at the at the camera and says, look, in the end, it's all meaningless. Just do whatever works for you. If that's, if that's what we're left with, because yeah. all we have is our own human resources, yeah. we are in a sad place. Yeah. But the gospel says uh, not only does Jesus... God in human form come to sort this out. Mm. He gives a way of life that helps us to make sense of both the good and the bad. Uh, so he gives the good and the bad as much as we can, recognizing there are still going to be some mysteries there. But not only that, he actually comes and empowers us from within. Mm. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside us to give us the power and the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the self-control that we need to live in this life. Mm. If we don't have that, mm. then we're going to have to try and generate those things ourselves because you're going to need them. 
and that is where I keep on coming back now is yes. that personal development just isn't enough. We need yes. the empowering of God himself yes. to be able it's to so good. become yeah. the people we're meant to be. So I think, you know, it all comes down, hope ultimately comes down to God. Otherwise, um, we're left only to our own good ideas and devices. Yes. And, and however hopeful we might be in our own resilience, our, our, even our community, that's rather vapid when it comes to the, the big things in life. Look, a, a war can, can turn that up on its head mm. <laughs> within a day. Living here in the United Kingdom, after all of those years living in Australia, and seeing how we are just so close to the world's problems right here in the UK. And we've got yeah. five or six major crises going on ourselves in this country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Life is good in Australia mm. in comparison. Mm. You're so far away from so many of the big challenges of the world. We are facing people at the moment that are going cold and hungry as a result of that war in Ukraine mm. as a result of Russian aggression. And we're here in the United Kingdom. We are all connected and the fact is that it doesn't take much for somebody else, maybe even far away, to, to, to evidence something, do something, and you can be affected. So even those wonderful times in life, you know, we've got to be grateful for them, enjoy them. Mm. The book of Ecclesiastes says enjoy those moments. Mm. Um, enjoy every moment of that eating and that play and that joy and that fellowship and that fun that you can have in that moment. Uh, but ultimately, it says, but fear God and follow his ways and do what yeah. he's calling you to do. That's where ultimate meaning is found. That's, that's a, a really beautiful balance between all of the richness that we can enjoy of the good things of life to celebrate, but understand in the context of, of our essential human existence, there's much, much more. Sheridan, I've so enjoyed uh, our few minutes that we've been able to chat together. Uh, I, I love the ideas that you capture and that you present and explain and, and help others access. And I'm very thankful that God continues to reveal himself to you. And through that, you share your insights, your understandings with the rest of the Christian church and those that can benefit from the way God has gifted you to tell his story. And thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you, Brendan. Wonderful questions. Really, uh, you pushed me and I really appreciate the thought that's gone into them. Thank you.